0: Chapter 10 of Edward I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by caveat. Edward I by Professor T. F. Tout. Chapter 10. The Scottish Overlordship, 1286-1292. to During the long and peaceful reigns of the 2nd and 3rd Alexanders, The strangely composite territories which make up the modern Scotland had been gradually acquiring unity and national self-consciousness. The Western Highlander, the Scot, properly so called, had been for centuries joined together with the Picts of the North and North East. The Welsh of the South Western Shires and the English of the Lothians had similarly come into close relationship. The English helmet had established itself all over the South, and only in the fastnesses of the North, or the wild moorlands of Galloway, that the old Celtic tongue still continued to be spoken. The silent spread of Norman influence over the southern Scotland, in the century succeeding the landing of William the Conqueror, had made the whole nobility of the Lowlands as much and as little French as the nobility of England. Except that the Highlanders retained their lawless old Celtic freedom, and that the Norse settlements on the Western Isles and the extreme north of the mainland still kept aloof from their neighbours. The Kingdom of Scotland had become a feudal monarchy, of the Anglo-Norman pattern, preserving, however, a still stronger Celtic element than the English state, while the newness of any idea of Scottish national feeling and the weakness of the royal authority threw greater power into the hands of the nobility and gave less influence to the people at large. The fourfold character of the land, British, Gaelic, Norse, English, still remained, but Scotland was fast settling into its modern divisions of highlands and lowlands, The elaborate process by which Highland chieftains, such as the early Scottish kings were, had become English feudal monarchs, had almost been forgotten. The variety of their powers and titles in the various parts of their dominions was rapidly becoming a matter of more antiquarian curiosity. Even the Norsemen had ceased to look for help to their old Scandinavian homes, after the Battle of Largs had put an end forever to the invasions of the descendants of the ancient Vikings. The relations between the Scottish kings and the English crown became vaguer as the process of amalgamation went on, and the power of the northern monarchy grew greater. In the old days before the Norman conquest, there had been countless instances of the Scottish kings acknowledging the English monarch as their father and lord, while the ties which bound them as the lords of Lothian and Strathclyde to their southern neighbours were undoubtedly still more rigorous and precise. But the feeling that the sovereign's dignity was in some way disparaged by even the most formal acknowledgement of an external overlordship was rapidly extending, and all the way through the 13th century there had been constant bickerings between the English and the Scottish kings as to the nature and the limitations of the homage which the former exacted, and which the latter in some sort of fashion bestowed. There is, however, little doubt but that the common feeling of the time recognised that the Scottish kings were in a vague way dependent on the English kings, though it is equally clear It was a supremacy of a very indefinite and old-fashioned sort, which brought with it none of those onerous feudal obligations which a potentate so great as the Duke of Guienne paid to his French overlord. The very title of king suggested a greater freedom than this, though the Scottish kings were not in the same rank, according to medieval notions, as the greater kings of Europe, who alone received the mystic unction of the church. It was the height of the ambition of the Welsh princes to vindicate for themselves the substantial position of independence which the Scottish kings enjoyed, despite their nominal subordination to the English crown. As long as a good personal understanding prevailed between the English and Scottish courts, it was everybody's interest to let sleeping dogs lie. Accordingly, Henry III and Edward I had contented themselves hitherto with being on good terms with their northern neighbours and not bringing forward too prominently any unpleasant questions of right. Alexander II married a daughter of John. Alexander III married Margaret, a daughter of Henry III. Though there was a vigorous national party at his court which sought to ill treat the young queen as a practical way of protesting against southern influence. Alexander, however, remained firm in his friendship for his father-in-law and brother. If he sent troops to fight for Henry at Lewes, what did it matter that he protested that they were sent by special favour? and not as a duty incident of any feudal relations with England. He protested on performing homage to Edward, that he saved the rights of his kingdom. It was of little importance to the English king, so long as he went through the ceremony publicly and deliberately. Accordingly, good peace prevailed between the two realms. But for occasional disturbances on the borders, nothing occurred to break the harmony between the brothers-in-law. Alexander III died early in 1286. Mark of England had already died in 1275. And all of her three children had followed her to the grave. The only representative of Alexander and Margaret was their granddaughter, Margaret of Norway, a sickly child, scarcely three years old, whose mother, Margaret, the daughter of the King and Queen of Scots, had died in giving her birth, and whose father, a youth still in his teens, was Eric, King of Norway. But the provident care of Alexander had already arranged for the succession of the little maid of Norway. She was peacefully proclaimed queen. And a commission of regency ruled Scotland in her name. The regents strove, with a moderate measure of success, to put down the disturbances caused by the greedy and unscrupulous nobles, who put forth pretexts to the succession as an excuse for disturbing the realm. Things remained in this condition for nearly three years, when the return of Edward from Gascony to England brought about a new development. Edward had anxiously watched the progress of Scottish affairs. He resolved that the best way of turning Margaret's succession to the advantage of the two realms was to negotiate a marriage between the little queen and his only surviving son, Edward of Carnarvon, a boy a few months younger than Margaret. With this object, he procured from the Pope a bull of dispensation to permit her the union between the cousins, and negotiated dexterously and deliberately both with the Regents of Scotland and Eric of Norway. The result was the Treaty of Salisbury, on November 1289, for which the three powers agreed that Margaret was to be sent to Britain before Hallow Tide, 1290, for and unbound by any contract of marriage, while the good folk of Scotland gave security that they would make no arrangements for a marriage without Edward's consent. In March 1290, a Parliament of Scottish magnates assembled at Brigham on the borders and solemnly confirmed the Treaty of Salisbury. Edward's success in these first measures led him to take up a more decided line. The excessive caution which kept all mention of Margaret's marriage to Edward out of the Salisbury Treaty was now thrown aside. A second set of negotiations were begun at Brigham, the result of which was the Treaty of Brigham of July 1290, in which the marriage between young Edward and Margaret was arranged, and in which King Edward pledged himself and his heirs that, in the event of the match being carried out, the laws, customs and liberties of Scotland should be for all time observed, and the realm of Scotland should under any circumstances remain separate and divided and free in itself, without subjugation to the realm of England, as have been observed in former times saving certain ancient rights of Edward over the marches or elsewhere the upshot was that if the crowns became united in the offspring of the union the kingdoms were to remain separate while any vague superiority that Edward was still at liberty to claim the Scots by the terms of the treaty was so whittled away that it gave no practical effect it was a highly statesmanlike and moderate measure England abandoned any real overlordship over Scotland that the heirs of the two thrones should renounce the kingdoms on equal terms. Very elaborate care was shown to maintain the self-respect of the weaker party, and to bring about a real and solid union. It was well for both lands if the Treaty of Brigham had been carried out. Everything now depended on Edward getting the Maid of Norway into his possession before All Saints' Day. A large and well-equipped Yarmouth ship was dispatched to King Eric's court to bring Margaret to her husband and kingdom. So careful was Edward of the little queen's childish wants that a stock of small luxuries such as walnuts, sugar, ginger, figs, raisins and gingerbread was added to the more solid stores provided for the vessel. Norway was safely reached and in due course the ship of Yarmouth sailed with Margaret from Bergen. But the perils and discomforts of an autumn voyage over the northern ocean were too severe for the endurance of the delicate child. She became so ill that the ship put into the Orkneys to give her relief, but it was all in vain. The Maid of Norway died, and with her perished the best hope of a true union of Britain. The Regency continued to rule as before, but its task, hard enough during Margaret's lifetime, became impossible after her death. A swarm of claimants to the throne started up, and sought to prove their rights by an immediate appeal to arms. Anarchy threatened Scotland. It seems as if the Lowlands were likely to dissolve into a series of petty feudal states, like the Lordship's Marcher of Wales for not one of the competitors had strength enough to make head against the others, and there was no strong national feeling to insist upon the maintenance of the unity of the Scottish state. There was no longer any representative left of the stock of William the Lion, the grandfather of Alexander III. The best claims to the throne were based upon descent from David, Earl of Huntingdon, the brother of King William, and the great-uncle of the last King of the Scots. But David himself had left no sons behind him. His heirs were three daughters, whose living representatives were the grandsons of the first and third daughter and the son of the second. It was, however, by no means settled whether females had any right at all over the Scottish succession, so that, apart from the main claimants, a swarm of minor pretenders represented even bastard branches of the royal family, added to the confusion by pressing forward their fancied rights. Moreover, as regards the claims of the descendants of David of Huntingdon, there were further legal points of great difficulty. John Baliol, the grandson of Margaret, the eldest daughter, demanded the throne as a representative of the senior branch. But Robert Bruce, son of the second daughter, Isabel, claimed to have a better right inasmuch as he was a generation nearer the parentry than his cousin Baliol. At the same time, John Hastings, Lord of Abergavenny, a valiant Lord Marcher and a dexterous judge, whom Edward honoured highly, who was the grandson of the grandest daughter of David, argued that the throne should at least be divided according to the ordinary rule of feudal law, co-heiresses, and equal share of the estates that they had inherited. If the kingdom of Scotland was like the Earl of Huntingdon, this was no doubt good law, and when the estate was divided among females, the title, unless specially revived, remained in abeyance. But it was not very likely that this doctrine would attain a favourable hearing in Scotland. It involved an extinction or a division of the kingdom itself. The real dispute, then, was between Bailigan and Bruce, in whose favour most Scots naturally declared themselves, though there was always the danger that the greed of the many claimants should prove too strong for the national abhorrence of the division of the kingdom. Bailigan and Bruce both belonged to a higher feudal aristocracy of Scotland, and both were, characteristically enough, of good North French descent, and at least as much English as Scottish in character, history and possessions. Balliol was the lord of Barnard Castle in Durham, and held by right of his father thirty knights' fees in various parts of England, beside considerable states in Picardy. He also had, by right of his mother, Jalla, heiress of Galloway, and the pious founder of Balliol College, Oxford, a share in two great inheritance, the half-independent Lordship of Galloway, and the large possessions of David, Earl of Huntingdon. His connection with Scotland was therefore of no long standing, though very considerable. Bruce's family had been long settled in Scotland where they ruled over Annadale from their castle of Lochmaben. But Bruce himself had been more occupied during his long and busy career in England than in Scotland having served for many years as Sheriff of Cumberland and for a time as Chief Justice of the Court of King's Bench. But he was a very old man and the practical enforcement of his claims lay with his son, Robert Bruce who, by another rich marriage, had acquired the lands and titles of the Earls of Carrick both the Bruce's and the Balliol's had long aspired to the Scottish accession, were already on terms of deadly rivalry. Round them the lesser claimants grouped themselves into fiercely hostile factions. The regents of Scotland anticipated civil war, and even before Margaret's death, the most important of the regents, Bishop Fraser of St. Andrews, had urged that the claimants should peacefully refer their claims to Edward of England. Edward's great moderation and discretion during the Brigham negotiations preeminently marked him out as fit to decide so difficult a question all the claimants agreed to accept Edward as the final judge of their pretensions. The strong sense and clear judgment which had already arbitrated between the rivalries of Aragonese and Angevans were now brought to bear upon difficulties nearer home. Edward at once accepted the arbitration and convoked a meeting of the magnates of both realms to assemble at Northam on the borders on the 10th of May 1291. Thither there came, side by side, with the barons, clerks skilled in the civil and canon laws, and many monks with the chronicles kept in their respective houses to instruct the king as to historical precedents for his acts. The assembly met in Norham Parish Church, where Roger Brabazon, Chief Justice of England, declared that the king had become resolved to do justice to all and to derogate in no case from the ancient liberties of Scotland. Before, however, Edward would act, he insisted upon taking from the assembled gathering a recognition of the position which he now asserted had always belonged to him as Superior Lord of Scotland. The Scottish barons were not prepared for so rigorous and sudden a claim, and demanded time for consideration. This Edward granted. The chronicles were consulted and much argument exchanged, but after nearly a month's delay, the competitors all accepted Edward's claim, and further agreed that he should have Sasian of the land and castles of Scotland until the suit was decided, and for two months afterwards. Edward met them halfway by promptly we reappointing the former regents with the addition of one board of English baron. The castles were duly surrendered, Edward's peace proclaimed, and the mass of the Scottish barons took oaths of fealty to Edward as their superior lord. The great suit was appointed to be heard at Berwick, then a Scottish town, and the one great centre of commerce in the poor and disorderly land. A special tribunal was appointed to pronounce judgment, consisting of eighty Scots, of whom Bruce and Bailey each appointed forty, and twenty four Englishmen chosen by Edward himself. Before the sessions of the great courts began, Edward went on a short tour southern Scotland visiting Edinburgh, Stirling and Fernland and St Andrews and receiving the homages of Scotsmen of every sort while in places not visited by himself in persons his agents did the like. The great court then began its sessions in the castle chapel at Berwick in August 1291. It sat with frequent and long adjournments till November 1292. Every point was elaborately investigated and the strictest regard was paid to the formal law. At last king's decision was declared in favor of Balliol. Edward rejected the species but unsound claim of Bruce on account of the greater proximity by blood. He spoke with equal decision against the clever attempt of Hastings to break up the kingdom into three, much as of course would have helped forward the political interests of England. He declared that the Scottish kingdom was indivisible and that both by English and Scots law, John Balliol was the rightful heir of Scotland. The new king was at once put in possession of his kingdom He was speedily crowned at Scone and a few weeks after performed a homage to Edward at Newcastle. Scotland accepted the decision and for some time King John reigned in peace. All through the great suit, Edward's conduct had been thoroughly just and moderate. No one nowadays would deny that his decision was based upon sound law. It was also equally sound in policy. If Edward showed a little too much eagerness in taking advantage of the helplessness of the Scots to attract them into acknowledgement of his supremacy... It should be remembered that he thought he was advancing no new claim, but rather that upon had been constantly upheld by his predecessors and supported by plenty of proof, such as the vagueness of the relations between the two crowns allowed. He seemed well satisfied for the pains he had taken in determining the suit for the unequivocal recognition of his supremacy which he had obtained. If his great scheme for the union of the kingdoms had died with the maid of Norway, he had at least cleared up and defined wherein his superiority really consisted. Had he gone no further, we should have had to indicate a new and striking example of was all-embracing policy of definition. As it was, it was but the beginning of a new series of difficulties. The Scottish arbitration may have been looked upon as a culminating point of the power of Edward I. the first. In the eventful twenty years since his succession, he had attempted many tasks, but had sought to deal with nothing beyond his strength, and had, alive for the narrowness of his resources, proved singularly and uniformly successful. He had secured for his people strong and just governance. He had drawn up a great code of epoch-making laws. He had reorganised the finances, regulated and defined every portion of the constitution. He had annexed and assimilated the turbulent principality of Wales, and had neutralised the feudal liberties of the unruly Lord's Marcher. He had checkmated the great barons, and had kept at arm's length the eager and aggressive churchmen. He had secured just limits for Gascony, and reformed the system of government. He had, on both sides of the sea, sought for the good of his subjects and set up a firm alliance between king and people. He had arbitrated successfully the greatest European dispute of the day and had built up a system of alliances which secured his position on the continent as the great moderating and mediating power. The subjugation of Scotland was the crown of a long, a vigorous and successful career. So strong was Edward's position that Pope Nicholas IV now again appealed to him to lead the long-postponed crusade against the infidels. Acre had fallen in 1291, With the princes of Europe to make no effort to recover it, Syria seemed hopelessly given over to Mohammedan rule. For a short time, Edward seems to have thought that the hour of the crusade was come, but before any serious preparations for it had been accomplished, there ensued a period of trial and difficulties, severe enough almost to break down even his dauntless nerve and energy, and from which he had not extricated himself when old age and death at last overtook him. New scenes was now opened up, and Edward was forced to go on in his work, and aided by the faithful counsellors on whom he had hitherto placed his trust. Between 1290 and 1292, the chief actors in the earlier part of Edward's reign pass away. Just before the Scottish Troubles began, Edward sustained an irreparable loss in his birthful consort, Queen Eleanor, who died of some sort of low fever at Harby near Grantham. In November 1290, I loved her dearly during her lifetime, wrote Edward. I shall not cease to love her now that she is dead. Her body was born with every show of reverence and affection to its last resting place at Westminster, and Edward's pious care erected a sumptuous tomb over her remains, and a fair cross, a miracle of sculptors and masons' work on every spot where her beloved corpse had reposed on its final sad journey to the Abbey. The Chronicles celebrate her piety, her modesty, her pitifulness, and above all, her love for all good Englishmen and her complete sympathy with the ways of her adopted country. Within a year of her daughter in law's decease, the less popular Eleanor, Edward's mother, died in her retirement among the nuns of Amesbury, where she had sought to atone for the follies of her past career by a show of her entering into religion, without, however, renouncing those beloved possessions to obtain which she had incurred so much ill will among her father's and son's subjects. But however little Eleanor was beloved by the people, Edward was a good son and deeply felt her loss. Soon after, Bishop Burnell, the faithful Chancellor, died in his last public act, being the declaration of the King's judgment in the great Scottish suit. John Kirkby, Bishop of Ely and Treasurer, a sharp, shrewd financier who served the King so well that he was hated by the people, had already died in 1290. The most famous of Edward's judges had disappeared in the thorough purging of the judicial bench in the same year. And lastly, Archbishop Peckham ended his meddlesome and bustling career in 1292, Fighting and quarrelling with his clergy down to his dying day. The death roll of English worthies was, however, trifling as compared with the clean sweep of the older actors on the continental stage in the years between 1285 and 1292. Both at home and abroad, Edward's later years brought him into contact with another generation, a generation of meaner stature than the which had gone before. His strong, stern figure stands out in increasing loneliness as his difficulties gathered with his advancing years so many were his troubles that we can no longer pursue our former method of dealing with the various aspects of his policy in separate sections. In the critical years which follow, home and foreign affairs, the French War and the Scottish Troubles, the strife with the barons and the difficulties with the Church, the constitutional movement and the effort of the King to obtain arbitrary power are all jostled together in hopeless confusion. It is only by examining Edward's actions in the midst of so many simultaneous troubles that we can fully realise what manner of man. He was. End of chapter 10.